Continuing our passage this morning, I will be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but there might be, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he that gathered much did not have too much, and he that gathered little did not have too little. The grass fades, the flower withers, but this, the word of God, endures forever. This is the word of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. I'm sure that all of you during your spiritual journeys have had events or situations that more than any others caused you to reflect on your relationship with God. For me, nothing has caused that to happen more frequently than being a parent. There is something about loving and having responsibility for a child, of wanting the best for them, and wanting them to safely grow into their potential that makes me wonder about my Heavenly Father as He watches me grow and develop. I want to share with you just one story that illustrates that point. I have three children two girls and a boy. My boy is also named Miles. But my boy was one of those children who developed curiosity and courage before wisdom. <laughs> there was nothing that boy didn't want to put in his mouth. There was nothing he didn't want to climb. There was nothing he didn't want to knock over. There was nothing he didn't want to fall off of. And there was no body of water that he didn't want to be in, whether he had a bathing suit on or not. We were terrified with him around water. We couldn't take our eyes off him for a second. So on a family vacation to Florida, I had him wrapped up, wrapped up in every flotation device available. 
At one point, we were playing at the edge of the water, and I had to go do something with one of my daughters. But I knew, because of his background, I couldn't leave him without a sufficient warning. So before I left, I said, Miles, please stay with your mother while I'm gone. No response. So I said again, Miles, stay with your mother. It's like he didn't even hear me. So I elevated the volume a little bit, and I said, Miles, stay with your mother. At that point, he turned around, and with all the indignation of a four-year-old, he said, Dad, don't worry. If she falls in, I'll help her. What a perfect illustration for how I sometimes respond to my Heavenly Father. I hope when I do it that he laughs as much as you just did. I want to believe that when my son was four years old that I as the father knew more about how to live this life than he did. I wanted nothing but the best for him, so my instructions were truly for his benefit. I wasn't trying to be mean or controlling. I was giving him instructions because I loved him and I wanted the best for him. But my wisdom and instructions were of little value if he thought I was talking about someone else. In a similar way, God has given us instructions on how to live this life because he loves us. He designed us and he knows more than we do about how to live this life. God's instructions are for our benefit. He isn't trying to be mean or controlling, but just like my son, if I hear God's instruction and I assume it applies to someone else, I miss out on what God wants for me. Sometimes I think I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I think I read a passage like this and subconsciously, not even being fully aware of it, subconsciously I'll pray, God, don't worry. If they, they of course meaning you, if they forget this passage, I'll remind them. In doing so, I miss the point and I deprive myself of the insight God has for me. So in order to truly understand this passage and to engage with it, I have to decide if it applies to me. Normally we ask this question when scripture gives a command and we need to decide if it is specific just to those people and to that time or if it is universal. But that isn't what's happening here. Paul isn't giving a command to the Corinthians church. It is more of an invitation. He is suggesting that the Corinthian church follow the example of the Macedonian church so they will share in the joy experienced in Macedonia. By publishing this letter, putting it in the Bible, Paul is issuing the same invitation to us, and he's letting us in on one secret of living a joyful Christian life. He shared the secret with the Corinthian church, and now that we have the letter, he's sharing it with us as well. Thus, I conclude that the lessons from this passage are just as relevant to each of us today as they were for the Corinthian church. 
But unless I accept that, I'll miss the point, just like my son did that day on the beach. The second thing I have to do as I begin to engage with this passage is to at least temporarily set aside all of my preconceived notions about what should limit my giving so I can actually hear what's being said and learn from the Macedonian example. I'm sure you understand what these giving limiters are because you have them too. Like most of you, I've had the expenses of putting three kids through college, legal bills, medical bills, housing expenses, car expenses, retirement fund, so forth and so on. You get the idea, I'm sure. I could go on. But the point is that if I really want to understand what this passage is saying to me, I have to set aside all of those considerations so I can see the lessons of this passage with fresh eyes. It's almost as if I need to get a box and to take all of those considerations, all of those expenses, and one by one symbolically put them in that box, then shut the box up, tape it closed, and put it over here on a shelf. They're not gone. I haven't deleted them. I will have to address them at some point. But for right now, as I'm engaging with this passage, at least theoretically, they are out of mind. Now that I've accepted this is a passage for me and I've set aside all my distractions, I can look at this passage with a clear, unencumbered mind. When I do, I discover that I am being encouraged to give based on just two motivations. We're going to look at those in a second. But first, let's take a look at the context of this passage. Paul writes this letter when the church in Israel was experiencing a severe famine. The letter was an attempt by Paul to describe for the Corinthian church how generous the Macedonian church had been in responding to this need. Of course, his hope was that the Corinthian church was going to respond just as generously. He, what's interesting about the passage, though, is how he describes the Macedonians and their giving. He describes them as going through a severe trial. He doesn't tell us what that trial is, but a severe trial and extreme poverty. And yet, they pleaded with Paul for the privilege of giving financially to the saints in Israel. They gave joyfully. They gave willingly. They gave beyond their ability. And they even gave beyond Paul's expectations. As one that works in the field of stewardship, I can't help but wonder how one gets a job as director of stewardship in that church. They begged, seriously, they begged and pleaded for the privilege of giving. I've got to step back and ask why. What would make people who are living under a trial and in extreme poverty, what would make them give beyond their means? The only answer I can come up with 
that motivated this level of selfless, selfless generosity was gratitude. The Macedonian church had only recently been included into the family of God by the work of Christ. They were Gentiles, not Jews. And they knew they didn't deserve, nor had they earned, a place in the body of Christ. Yet they were grafted into the family as full brothers and sisters by grace. They knew the value of what they had been given, and they were grateful. And as you know, gratitude is a powerful emotion, just like love, hate, or fear. It influences how we think, how we set our priorities, how we interact with one another, and how we live our lives. When Paul made his request, they gave generously not because they had to and not because they were wealthy, but because they were grateful for what they had already been given themselves. Gratitude, I maintain, was the powerful motivation for their giving. The second motivation for giving that Paul challenges the Corinthian church to consider seems almost unfair in its power and significance. He reminds them that as disciples, part of our job is to imitate Christ. If we're going to imitate someone, that means we're going to try to learn to walk like they do, talk like they do, think like they do, and perhaps even give like they do. In case you have forgotten, Paul seems to imply, Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be like Christ, generosity must be a defining characteristic. Now we come to the problem that we have to face as we try to apply this passage to our present context. If I make my giving calculations with gratitude and a desire to be like Christ foremost in my mind, I'll come up with one answer for what I should give. If I start my calculations with what's over here in the box, I'll come up with a different answer and likely less generous. Somehow, I have to strike a balance between those two numbers. And as you know, that's really, really difficult. But while I can see that it's difficult, I know that it's not impossible. Because the Macedonians have done it. And throughout the course of my career, I have known numerous, dozens of people who learned how to give out of gratitude rather than out of their financial obligations. They inspire me, and I'd like to share the story of just a couple of them with you. One example is a woman by the name of Verdina. She worked her entire career as a secretary for the Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company up in Michigan. She lived in a home that couldn't have been more than 900 square feet, and she'd been in that home for 40 years. She was always appropriate and well-kept, but you'd never call her stylish because she just didn't spend any money on herself. Verdina loved children. And at the time, I worked for a ministry where I was traveling around the world providing medical care and clean drinking water for children. 
And every time I came home, she'd want me to come to visit and bring her a picture of the children that we were serving. She loved the fact that her modest gifts were helping to provide health care and water to children. Shortly after she passed, we got a call from the executor of her estate. In spite of her humble means, she had taken out a life insurance policy on herself with our organization being named as the sole beneficiary. The executor called to tell us that he was about to send us a check for $500,000 from her insurance policy. I know for a fact that that $500,000 is more money than she spent on herself during the last 10 years of her life. I also know, or at least believe, that Verdina was a woman that passed into the presence of the Lord with the joy of the Macedonians, knowing that she was, being, she was leaving behind a resource that was going to care for children all over the world. I, I wish it were different, but I got to tell you, I am not like Verdina. Peter's another example of a person who learned how to give out of gratitude. If you owned a Volkswagen, between the, the late 1940s and the early mid-1970s, and it had a radio in it, that radio came from Peter. He owned the national franchise for all audio equipment in American Volkswagens. But what's interesting about Peter and his wife is that before they were married, before they started working, they made a decision that they were going to give 30% of whatever they made to the work of the church. As he tells the story, at first it started out to be really hard, and then he caught up with it. And after a while, he, he made a realization. He says that he discovered that there's no place in Scripture that requires someone to give 30% of their income. So he upped it to 50%. And then he upped it to 70%. You may not know this, but West Michigan, on a per capita basis, is the most generous, second most generous region in the country. You have to be a Mormon in Utah to give more than the Dutch of West Michigan. Because of that, all the Christian ministries you know about have at least regional offices there in West Michigan. And we all had fundraising banquets. And Peter showed up at every one of them. And he gave to all of us. And because of that, it would be hard to calculate. I surmise that there is not a corner of the world that Peter's generosity did not in one way impact. He gave to all those organizations and they all worked all over the place and he at least in part was responsible for the work of those ministries. I'll never forget Peter because I was in his office on the morning of 9-11 and we shared that tragic moment together. But I also will never forget Peter because he, more than anyone else I know, learned early on in life how to give out of gratitude and literally the world benefit from it. I'm not like Peter. Another giver who has inspired me with her generosity was a woman named Helen. She was a member of this church for 67 years. She took care of her ailing husband for 20 years and then worked as a receptionist in a local funeral home 
for 46 years. She retired at the age of 94. In her spare time, she worked as one of the holy folders preparing bulletins for our worship services here at First Presbyterian Church. She just died exactly a year ago at the age of 100. I asked permission to share this with you so I'm not breaking a confidence. Last month, her representative came into the church and delivered a check for $600,000 so that the ministries that she cared about at First Presbyterian Church could be continued in perpetuity. <laughs> Working until 94? Seriously? I'm not like Helen either. I'm not like the Macedonians. I'm not like Verdina. I'm not like Peter. I'm not like Helen. But I want to be. Because someday, I want, in all honesty and full of integrity, someday I want to be able to read this passage, free from all my distractions, rooted in gratitude and the desire to imitate Christ. I want to be able to read this passage and then pray, God, don't worry. I hear you. Perhaps that's a prayer you'd like to pray along with me. Amen.